I titled the sermon, Judging Jesus. And it's a fascinating thing to think of, of what's taking place here. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about sinners, humans, creations of the king, handiwork of Jesus himself, held and sustained by Christ as they stand over him in judgment to condemn him. It's, it's mind-blowing. And these verses should really trouble us, uh, but we're going to see some glory in these as well. And so we're going to cover from chapter 22, uh, verses 63 through 23:25 tonight, and then we'll focus next week on uh, the death and burial of our Savior. So let's pray before we dive into God's Word together and just ask for His blessing on our time. Oh, Father, we are grateful for the gift of Your Son, Jesus. We make much of Him. There is no greater treasure in our lives than this King of kings and Lord of lords. We stand under Him as, as those who have been happily broken, sweetly broken, by this grace, this gift of love. Thank you, O oh Lord, for showing us our sin, for drawing us down to our knees in submission and repentance before this great and glorious Savior who suffered and died for us. Be glorified now, Father, as we study these verses together. Teach us from your word. Open our eyes to behold beautiful things from your law. Equip us then to live lives that would honor you and obey you and, and, and be complete to, to demonstrate the goodness and the glory of this gospel that you've called us to carry this week as we go from this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Judging Jesus. Well, let's begin in verses uh, 63 to 65. I want to just pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. Remember, we're in the garden it's early in the morning on Friday. It's cold, probably a cloudless night. The stars are out, but there is great trouble and distress. Jesus has been betrayed with a kiss by Judas, one of his own, one of the 12. He has been taken then as the disciples scattered in all directions and fled, leaving Jesus alone. He, he was taken before Annas and Caiaphas. Uh, Caiaphas, the high priest of, of the time, but Annas, really the one who brokers the power in the priesthood. And these midnight hearings were illegal, and they had a goal. How do you find a man guilty who is innocent? Right? That's the challenge they have. And you do that, as we learn in other Gospels, by trying to get people to come up with great False accusations. Now, in this day, to falsely accuse someone was a big deal, and they had to have a witness. So two people had to agree and come together, and they tried to lob all these different things, and they found enough in those hearings to where they thought then they could take it before the Sanhedrin, and, uh, and that's where we're going to pick up. Now, remember, we left off with the rooster, that sovereignly appointed rooster crowing and revealing the fickleness of Peter's resolve. The, the bluster was taken away, and he was humbled and broken by the Lord. Remember the eyes of Christ that looked at him from all that distance away as the rooster crowed, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. So that's where we're at. It's just taken place, and Luke brings us now into the, into the scene as we move from there. Uh, in the sermon notes, you'll notice that I've got 
uh, a number of different interactions that take place. We're going to begin with the guards before Jesus, verses 63 to 65. The guards before Jesus. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Okay, first of all, right out of the gate, we understand this is a violent arrest. They have seethed at Jesus. They have wanted to get their hands on him for a long time. Now they have him, and they are making a mockery of him. They also blindfolded him. They wanted to create a game. And so they blindfolded him, and they kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they would swing a fist and tell us who that was, Jesus. They said many other things against him, blaspheming him, disrespecting him. This is, the, this is God himself being blindfolded and mocked. Now, just imagine if you're one of these, these guards, okay, and it's in the nighttime and you're, you're playing games with the Son of God. And you've got him blindfolded and, you're, and you punch him just really solid right in the face and you just knock him really good and then you step back laughing and everyone's like, oh, who was that? Now imagine, just imagine if Jesus chose to answer that question. Imagine what he could have said. He could have said without the slightest bit of work the man's full name, the exact minute of his birth, He could have spoken every sin the man had ever committed. He could have placed the man in every location he had ever been. He could have revealed all of the man's greatest fears and insecurities. He knew every single one of these men. But he remained silent. He kept silent before those who took him like a lamb before the shears, Isaiah prophesied. They mocked him. They blasphemed him. We sing a song that speaks of Jesus being beaten, mocked, and scorned. This is the beginning of it. It's intense. He's bloodied. He's bruised. And he's not even close to the cross yet. Think of this. This is happening while it's still dark. This takes place for some time. And then we find that at the crack of dawn, probably 5 a.m. or so, the Sanhedrin requests Jesus. And so Jesus, the, the Sanhedrin before Jesus, verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both the chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. If you are the Christ, tell us. Now, remember who we're dealing with here. We're talking about the 70-member ruling council, the Sanhedrin. This is made up of the movers and shakers of this group. And, and, and so 70 of them. But what's interesting is you learn from the other Gospels that not all 70 are there. This is a kangaroo court. They're just, they've been quietly and quickly gathered. Quick, we got enough. We think we can take him. We, we've captured him. We've, we've, we've tried our best to put some false accusations here together. We think we've got some things that will stick. So come and we'll pass a sentence and then we'll take him to the Gentiles. We'll take him to the Romans. So they come in. Seventy-member council, however many were there with their beards. and their, They are delighted to have Jesus. 
bloodied and bound, blindfolded and before them. Hmm. If you are the Christ, tell us. If you are the Christ, tell us. Now, why would they ask this question? Do they want to know if this is truly the Messiah? Are they really wanting to know? Because, boy, if you are the Christ, hey, we'll follow. Is that what this is? No. This is a trap, just like everything else was a trap. They want Jesus to speak words that they can use against him. It's interesting how this goes. You ever been in a situation like that? In fact, it's one of the reasons I don't talk to the press. Get a call from King Five the other day. We'd like to interview about COVID. I'm like, no thanks. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't want to do that. I'm not interested because I don't trust that the words I speak will be employed in the setting that I speak them, in the way that I speak them, with the, the way that I have said them, the order even, the sequence. If you are the Christ, tell us, Jesus. Now, what's interesting is this is a loaded question. Uh, the, the word uh, or the, the, the title, the Christ, literally means anointed one. In the Hebrew, it's Messiah. In the Greek, it is Christ. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we're speaking of Jesus as the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who's been promised and, and enthroned, the son of David, the, the king of kings and lord of lords. When they say, Jesus, if you are the Christ, then tell us, what they want is they want to establish Jesus as a political identity. They, they want Jesus to take on this political label that they can then take him and label him and slate him before the Romans as an insurrectionist. Now, Jesus doesn't really play this game. Although the label fits, it's far more than any of these people would acknowledge. So he is before them, but he said to them, his response is this, I, if I tell you, you will not believe. So Jesus knows that they're not actually wanting to know if he's the Messiah. And he says, and if I ask you, you will unanswer, which is ironic because you remember when they decided we just got to stop answering Jesus? Remember when he asked these questions and we always end up being humiliated before the people? Let's not dialogue with him anymore. We cannot allow him to ask questions of us. So they're scared of his ability to absolutely take them apart. And Jesus knows this. So it's in, in a sense, it's like, well, what do you want me to say? How do you want me to respond to such a question? And then Jesus does what Jesus always does. He says something so spectacular, so far above anything they would expect. Listen to what he says. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And you've got to feel the, the tremor that would have gone through the Sanhedrin at those words. Imagine hearing God the Son say, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of literally the power, the power, the Father. That's who we're speaking of. In saying this, he's referencing two extremely prophetic Old Testament uh, passages, one from Daniel 7 and another from Psalm 110, verse 1. Let me read you from Daniel 7. Daniel says this prophetically, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one 
like a son of man. This is Jesus' favorite title to speak of himself. And he came to the ancient of days. Who's that? The Father. And he was presented before him, and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting, an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That's Jesus in Daniel. He knows it. And so when he says, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, he's pointing to this. That's me. I am the Son of God. It's an amazing thing to think. Now, in this short little passage of verses, we see three different titles, all of which fit Jesus perfectly. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is indeed Daniel's Son of Man that he saw. And he is the Son of God that is spoken of in Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The right hand of the what? The power of the Father. So it's not lost on the Sanhedrin what Jesus has just said. This is a claim of divinity. Without batting an eye, you want to know who I am? Let me quote you two references, and you, you tell me. You tell me. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? You see what they did? They made the connection. They know Psalm 110. He says, Daniel, Son of Man. He quotes to being seated at the right hand of the power of God, the Almighty. And they say, oh, you're, you're the Son of God then. And he said to them, you say that I am. You say that I am. Now, I got stuck on that response. That is, that's a weird wording. And I had to dig a little bit to try to figure that out because here's what it sounds like to me. You know, like when you were kids, kids don't do this, but when we were kids on the playground, someone would call you a name and you'd be like, I know you are, but what am I? Right? It, the, I felt like when I read that, I felt like Jesus was saying, I know I am, but what are you? You know what I mean? Like, like so you're the son of God? I know I am, but what are you? You say that I am. It feels like that, but it's, it's just lost in our, in our ability. This is an affirmation. In fact, if you look at the New American Standard, th they translate it this way. Yes, I am. Just point blank. Yes, I am. So for those who would suggest that Jesus was just a great, great teacher, just a real great, upstanding kind of fella, but he wasn't God. Um, he's a liar if he's not God, because he just said he was. The Son of God. The one of whom the Father has seated at his right hand, even as we speak. Yes, I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They believe that they have heard blasphemy. And their response is to tear the robes. The high priest began to tear his robes at this. Outraged. Now the scene is serious. The, the Sanhedrin is, is arrayed in a, in a half circle. Jesus is in the middle. The high priest is tearing his robes. This is an act we learn in another gospel 
as he responds to this by tearing his robe, this was reserved only to tear the, the, the robes of the high priest could not be a personal offense against a high priest. It had to be an offense against God himself that would bring a high priest to tear his robes. And when he did that, he was tearing his robes, suggesting that the claim of Jesus to be God was blasphemous. How wrong he was. A blinded man, hard-hearted man. He wanted to see what he wanted to see. He didn't want to hear from God himself. You imagine those who had gathered outside the Sanhedrin court early in the morning. Word was spreading rapidly. A crowd was beginning to gather. It was uh, like, uh, you know, a magnet, a crowd that the murmuring, it's, it's Passover day, and, and they're beginning to gather, and someone maybe runs out. The high priest is tearing his robes. Jesus, this man, had the audacity to say that he was God. Blasphemy! You just hear it just move through the crowd. It does not take long for this crowd that shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is, they, they added, the King who comes in the name of the Lord to move from those glorious words just a few days earlier into crucify, crucify. Now Jesus is taken before Pilate. They believe they have what they need to, to present their case. They are limited. Uh, they, the, 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 the Romans have not allowed the Jews to practice capital punishment. They took that right from them. Otherwise, Jesus would have been immediately killed right there. They have to go before the Roman authorities, and the one who is in charge in Judea happens to be Pontius Pilate. And by the way, just so you know this guy a little bit, uh, he does not enjoy Jerusalem. He, he, he doesn't like the heat. He doesn't like the mess, the, the, the complications, all the uprisings. He would rather be hanging out in Caesarea over on the beach. But here he is in Jerusalem. Certainly he had to be because this is where it took place. This is Passover weekend. The city is filled and the tensions are high. So verse 1 of chapter 23 then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Before Pilate. Pontius Pilate, a few things to remember about this man. This is no pushover of a man. He is a Roman soldier. And in this day, Roman soldiers were ruthlessly firm, uh, strong-fisted. They put down rebellions with the sword, with resolve. Pilate has risen to the rank that he had risen to because of his fearsome, uh, aggression in these things. What's interesting about Pilate is that he couldn't just simply be brute force in this position. He was forced to be a bit of a politician. There were times where Pilate would come in with force and with the blade and try to deal with the Jews that way, and he found that didn't always work. In fact, there was a time where uh, they accused him of bringing idolatrous things into the city, into the holy places, and, and he said, if you don't allow this, I will kill you all. And they bared their necks and said, go ahead. And he knew if he would have done that, that massacre would have taken him out politically. He would have been removed, and so he backed down to the Jews on that occasion. That happened before these interactions. So Pilate himself knows there is only so much that I can do to keep the peace. I have to be somewhat political in order to work with this, this leadership in Jerusalem. 
they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, if you're Pilate, you're really not that worried about any of these three accusations. Maybe the third one would, would spark a little interest. Okay, a king, maybe that could be a problem, a, a bit of a disturbance. Misleading our nation, so is anybody on the street, preaching or speaking or whatever. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now, that could be interesting, but is that what Jesus has actually done? Do you remember this? You remember the exchange? Whose image do you see? And then Jesus responds, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If it has the image of Caesar, then we'll give it to him. He has done just the opposite of this accusation. If anything, he's encouraged people to pay the taxes that are asked without reservation. But then he added, render unto God the things that are God's and the image that we carry as God's creation. Saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's actually also a false statement. He has not made that specific claim. He hasn't said that in those words. He avoided that because they were so political in their sound. He wanted to be more than just a political deliverer. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Here it is again. (laughs) I know I am, but what are you? Right? Jesus basically says, it is as you've said. It is, it is as you've said. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds. Now, this is where we see this begin to happen. So, when the Sanhedrin moves then before Pilate, and they have Pilate before Jesus, you begin to see the crowds play a greater role. And how is that happening? What's going on in the crowds? Well, they've grown in number. And what we know, what we've seen on the news, is that the more people there are, the more this this sense of power begins to kind of seep in. And and you'll do things in a crowd that you would never do on your own. The mob begins to form. And they begin to be stirred by a few bad apples, planting and and causing this, this crowd to get fired up. Pilate says... Point blank, after examining Jesus, I find no guilt in this man. That's interesting. I was struck as I studied this this past week how many times Pilate returned to that conclusion in talking with Jesus. Remember these interactions from other Gospels? Do you realize the authority I have? I can have you delivered up or released. And Jesus says you would have no authority except that which is given to you from my Father. Woo! Goosebumps. Or Jesus speaks about the truth and Pilate responds, what is truth? Literally asking the question to the man who is the truth. The crowd, the religious leaders, the chief priests, they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and uh, from Galilee even to this place. He travels everywhere, basically. He's teaching, he's causing commotion, he's disrupting, he's rocking the boat. Hmm. 
when Pilate heard this, the key word here is Galilee. That's where they, they lost him at Galilee. They were screaming, and, and, and he's like, Galilee. Oh, that's interesting. Galilee? He's from Galilee? Listen, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So Herod is in Jerusalem for Passover gatherings. And he says, man, if I don't have to deal with this, I'd rather not. I'll let Herod take the ball and run. So he's part of that jurisdiction. I'll, I'll play that game. Send him on over to Herod. And so that's where we go. Herod before Jesus. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. This is interesting. Herod, you remember, is a, a, a very sordid fellow. Uh, he is the guy who would be probably more corrupt as far as leaders go than, than most in Jerusalem. Uh, he is in place kind of as a, a puppet king before uh, the Romans and really a, a compromiser, um, half Jew from the Herodian uh, kingly line here. He had a wife and then he went and visited his brother and, and said, well, I, I just, I fell in love with your wife. So he divorces his wife and he marries the wife of his brother. Herodias is her name. Well, that really didn't go over all that well and that came back to haunt him later on. But now here he is with his wife Herodias. And, and John the Baptist, you remember early in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, John the Baptist begins to call out what Herod had just done. It's totally wrong and sinful. He needed to repent. This is God's grace. And it just maddened Herodias so much that she plotted with her daughter to dance before Herod in a very seductive uh, kind of dance such that Herod basically said to Herodias' daughter, I will give you anything that you want, up to half of my kingdom. And she went and said, Mom, what should I say? And Herodias said, ask for John's head on a platter. And that's what she did. And Herod beheaded John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah. You think that's in Jesus' mind as he is now in the presence of Herod? I think so. A puppet king over Galilee and Perea, a man who is drunk with his own greatness, is now in the presence of the king of all kings. And he proceeds to interrogate for amusement. He sees Jesus. Now, you've got to understand at this point, Jesus is not impressive. He actually normally wasn't impressive. He didn't walk around with an air uh, that we would be drawn to him, it says, right? He had no stately former majesty. But he's been beaten for hours now. He's bloodied, he's bound, and he's brought before Herod. He interrogates him for amusement. Now, what did this entail? Beating, mocking, scorning, right? The same old thing. Do a trick. Right? We've heard you do amazing things. That's cool. Do one. Come on. Do something. What's interesting is Jesus doesn't say a word when he is before Herod. 
When he's with Pilate, he speaks. Even before the Sanhedrin, he speaks. But before Herod, not a word. And you just have to pause here and, and just say, that could be the most scary place to be. So hardened, so hateful, so opposed to God himself, that silence. He doesn't even acknowledge this man with a word. Think of all the things he could have said. Think of the words that would have been just and rightful. Think of the warning even he could have given. You better repent soon or you will face fire like you couldn't even imagine. He doesn't even say that. Herod is a doomed man. Now, the chief priests and scribes, they stood by and they were vehemently, just with anger and ferocity, accusing Jesus. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then they arrayed him in splendid clothing, mocking him like, you're the king, let's dress you in purple. Let's dress you like a king. And then they sent him back to Pilate, almost like a joke. Like, you think this is a king? This, you think this guy's actually a king? What a joke. This guy's nothing. He didn't say a word. He didn't do any tricks. I'm done. There's nothing there. Herod, and uh, he arrayed him, uh, sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. Uh, before this, they had been at enmity with one another. Isn't that interesting? They were drawn together through the trial of an innocent man. And ironically, that's the conclusion they both reached. This guy is innocent. He's nothing. He's not a king. He's not a threat. There's nothing here. It drew them together. A new friendship is formed as they treat Jesus with disrespect and hostility. Now, the madness of the mob... Jesus is brought back before Pilate now and, and uh, Luke is going to give this account of how this just spiraled down out of control. The madness of the mob. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one whom, uh, who was misleading the people and after examining him before you, I did not find this man guilty of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. That's pretty resounding. This man is innocent. Your charges are false. They're baseless. But instead of just releasing him, he says, listen, okay, okay, fine. I, I can appease your anger. I'll punish him, right? I'll punish him and then release him. This is a concession. This is a political move. I'll try to satisfy all this wound up, you know, energy and I'll take some out on him, then I'll let him go. This is the testimony of two witnesses. Jesus is declared without offense, wrongfully accused by two witnesses. And it's interesting because that's the requirement of the law. Each charge has to be established and Jesus has now two that are declaring him Without offense, these charges are false. Ironically, it's Herod and Pilate. This is the second time that 
Pilate declares him innocent. Now, verse 17 is uh, not in the early transcripts, but I put it in here as a scribal note just so that you can know some context. Uh, I think there was a scribe who wanted to explain some of the tradition here. Now, he was obliged to release to them one feast, uh, one uh, at the feast, one prisoner. So there was always a prisoner released at the feast. Now, the text picks up. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. At this, we should have great pause. Why would they so vehemently long to see Jesus killed and a murderer an insurrectionist released from prison instead. Hmm. This is insanity. It's insanity. Now, before the last few months, I would be like, we all can agree. But honestly, if you travel two hours south, I'm not sure we all can agree that this is total insanity. What is going on? We're, we're releasing sex offenders. We're releasing horrible, evil people who have committed terrible crimes into the population, and then we're going to lock up people who are trying to defend themselves. This makes no sense. I heard that Seattle just did away with their their jail. Like 1,700 spots in this jail are now closed. They're going to do away with their court in the city. I don't get it. It's insanity. I'll tell you the common thread. Satan, it's the same enemy. He turns it upside down. He makes things completely backwards. Makes no sense. Give us Barabbas, the murderer, and crucify Jesus, the man who has literally never sinned. Hmm. Now in Matthew, we learn this about Pilate. Listen to this. This is some background context. It says, he knew that it was out of envy that these leaders had delivered Jesus up to him. Besides, while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him and, and, and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Listen to those words. There's another voice, another witness of the innocence of Christ. For She says to her husband, Pilate, I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, I wish we could learn more about this. That's all we really know. Something of a dream took place with Pilate's wife as she was waking up early in the morning, and and it scared her, and it was Jesus in that dream. And the declaration of his righteousness and innocence, it, it shocked her and scared her, and she sends word to her husband, don't you do it, don't do it have nothing to do with him. Well, they agree. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So you see the instigators. Behind the crowd, there were instigators. We should say this. Let's do this instead. You guys chant for Barabbas. And let's ask for Jesus to be destroyed. Pilate addressed the crowd Once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify Him! 
A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. That's the second time he's offered that out. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed so that Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And by nine o'clock that morning, Jesus was on the cross. We'll see that next week. They embrace a murderer into their arms. Barabbas! Ha ha! You're free. We got what we wanted. We just committed the greatest act of sin the world will ever know. Crucify him. Pilate caves to the mob. He gave in. Hmm. Now, how do we respond to these verses? It's heavy. It's troubling, and it should be, right? It should be. This is an injustice. When you think about this, this word, justice, it's on our minds a lot. It's in the news a lot. Justice. We want justice served. Well, what is the standard of what is just? Is it the way I feel? Is it how I understand the world based upon the things that have happened to me? Is it what I think that, that we should do? Or maybe it's just the loudest opinion in the group, in the room. Or maybe the people who make the most fearsome noise and, and, and have the, uh, the most threatful attacks and, and maybe, we sh- maybe we should just call that justice. Friends, any longing that we have for justice should point us to God. God is the one who is just. He is just, perfectly just. He is holy. He is righteous. The reason that we cry for justice is because we're made in his image. It's evidence that he exists when we say that's wrong. Well, why? Why is it wrong? Because God is not like that. God is good. He is righteous. He is holy. He has declared that these are the way things ought to be. This is right. This is wrong. There is black and white. There is good and evil. And we need to make clear that we stand with what is right in His eyes. He's made people in His image with dignity. All people everywhere matter. Can we just agree on that? It's not hard. It's not a hashtag or a slogan it's the image of God that's stamped on every single human being that's simple liberty and justice for all the foundation cry of our nation it may have been a longing of the early founding fathers not as much a reality as it is now and we all long for it more but friends there's a lot to celebrate in this journey of the United States of America Justice is a big deal. But this doesn't feel right because it's not just. Jesus is crucified, 
Barabbas goes free. Guess what? I'm Barabbas. You're Barabbas. We're Barabbas. This is the gospel. The reality is, is that the reason this is so disturbing, at the same time, it's so glorious because Jesus, Jesus is accomplishing salvation. In his crucifixion and death, he is loving us, the sinners. And this plays out exactly as God ordained. Barabbas was in that position to point us to him and say, that's me. He took my place. He died the death. He, he was punished the way I should have been. The most spectacular sin ever committed is the source of our greatest hope. Hmm. Now, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, who is the just, is satisfied, glory be, to look on Him and pardon the Barabbas, the sinner, to pardon me. What a glorious gospel we have, friends. A word about cancel culture. The mob may make a lot of noise. They may have a lot of threats. And they may actually be quite popular. That does not necessarily mean the mob is right. We live in a day that quote-unquote justice is swift. It is guilty. There is no court necessary. You are deemed guilty and you are canceled. And it is in that culture that we walk as light. And we stand. And friends, we need to be reminded, as Jesus walked through this, this kangaroo court, what a joke this was. This was not just. He stood his ground. He held his tongue. He kept his word. He never sinned. What an example that is for us. We need to have the same courage to walk this road, whatever it may include. That means that we take a stand for what is right and just and true. Let the chips fall where they may. I'm sick, I just have to say, I am sick of this cancel culture. It's just peer pressure. That's all it is. It's playground peer pressure. You should do this. I don't want to do that. Though we all say you should. Well, why? Is it right or wrong? Doesn't matter. We say you should. No, it does matter. I want to do what my King Jesus tells me to do, and that's what I'm going to do. Christians need to have a backbone like never before. We don't cave to the pressure of a culture. Just because everything around us says this is not okay, hey, welcome to history. We gather for church. We obey the Lord. We call sin what it is, and we call people to a glorious Savior. And that's what we're going to be doing in 100 years. It may look different, but we will not be canceled. The church will prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against us, friends. We will stand by His power and by His grace. And we'll keep working. Now, notice on your sermon notes how the guards stood before Jesus. The, the Sanhedrin, as it were, were arrayed, I say, before Jesus, not Jesus before them. 
Pilate came before Jesus. Herod came before Jesus. And someday you will as well. Who is the judge in this equation? It's Jesus. It's always Jesus. All of these little humans, they think they've got all this power and all this, this important role, and they put Jesus in his place. No, that, that is not what happened. They all came before Jesus, and sadly, they were shown lacking. Now, when you come before Jesus, how will you come? It's my prayer that you will come humbly, joyfully, embracing arms open wide, not just a, a friend, but a king, a savior, a Lord, a treasure. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give praise to you. Thank you for your faithful walk through this dark valley. Thank you for every punch that you took while you were blindfolded, for all the drops of blood that fell from your precious head, for the bruises that you took that should have been mine, for the mocking, the spitting, the ridicule, the scorn, the blasphemy that you endured. We give praise to you, our King Jesus, for your perseverance in this work, your self-control. You could have struck them down so fast, but you finished the race. You held your tongue. You were innocent before the sinful mob as they shouted the words to crucify. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your good gift. Thank you for laying down your life, truly establishing the bar of love. Call us forward in that kind of love for one another. Lord, show us how to obey you, to delight in you, to, to shine this good news in a, in a culture that is just so upside down right now. Lord, I love this state. I love the state of Washington, but we're in, we're in trouble we, we have a, a state filled with people that need Jesus, and you've put us here. May we shine. Lord, help us not just to grumble. Help us to shine and stand out. Help our hearts to stay soft and our, our, our aggression be for the gospel. Lord, curb this, this mob, this, this division that's so run through our state. Lord, use us to bring peace and uh, rationality into the equation. And may the good news of our Savior advance rapidly as we shine bright in this state, Lord, and all around this nation. We thank you for this good gospel and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.